Infective endocarditis starts with a fibrin and platelet plug, which is the perfect medium for bacteria to latch onto and grow. Then that vegetation can break down the surrounding tissue, be it the cardiac valves or the myocardium itself. The symptoms for this almost always start with fever, but depend on what part of the heart is affected. Sometimes those vegetations can break off and a piece can travel to somewhere else in the body. If coming from the right side of the heart, the lungs is the next stop. If coming from the left side of the heart, the brain is the next stop. But these emboli can end up anywhere from the kidneys to the spleen to the spine, literally anywhere. Hey there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. On today's episode, we'll be diving into part two of infective endocarditis. I'll be referencing a case that I shared in part one. So if you haven't listened to episode number 60 yet, go ahead and hit pause and listen to part one first. In part one, I introduced you to Cora Carditis, and we talked about some of her symptoms, which were fever, tachypnea, chest pain, hypotension, and a new murmur, which these could be symptoms for several diagnoses, but the discovery that really helped us close in on the diagnosis was the echo of her heart. Even I could see the septic emboli hanging on to the heart valves. Infective endocarditis is a very multifaceted disease. It can present in so many ways. What I want to talk about in today's episode is how these septic emboli form, what signs and symptoms to anticipate when valvular damage has occurred, all of the embolic sequelae, and the diverse clinical manifestations associated with where those septic emboli or goobers end up. So let's start at the beginning. What would predispose a patient to infective endocarditis? Well, the endothelial lining of the heart is usually resistant to infection, but there are several conditions that can cause damage to the endothelial layer, making it at risk for bacteria to come in and make itself at home. So conditions like a bicuspid aortic valve, mitral valve prolapse, congenital heart defects, prosthetic valves, all of these things add some stress to the endothelial wall, which can cause damage, even minor damage. But when damage occurs, the body tries to repair it by laying down fibrin and platelets. This cap or patch, kind of like an internal scab, would usually just break down on its own with time. But when you have this fibrin mesh, this gelatinous goober, this is the perfect medium for bacteria to grow. Infective endocarditis almost always starts with non-bacterial thrombus. So 
The next question you should be asking yourself is, how does the bacteria get in there? Staphylococcus aureus, notorious for its ability to damage healthy valves, can gain entry through avenues such as skin abscesses, intravenous drug use with contaminated needles, central venous catheters, dental work, urogenital procedures, and of course, individuals with a compromised immune system, like those with AIDS or post-transplant patients or individuals undergoing chemotherapy, their reduced immune response makes them more susceptible to infections like infective endocarditis. So we have a non-bacterial plug that gets infected with bacteria that was introduced into the bloodstream via dirty needles or dental work, catheters, etc. Once the bacteria gets in there, the problems get worse. Microbial vegetation stimulates an immune response, attracting neutrophils and macrophages to combat the infection. This immune response also triggers the production of cytokines, which contribute to the inflammatory process. Your body mounts this great immune response that I like to call the inflammatory cascade of awfulness. Think SIRS, or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. So not only do you have to deal with hypotension, tachycardia, fever, and all those symptoms, the bacteria can literally destroy the valves and the surrounding tissue in the heart. Unfortunately, the bacteria involved in infective endocarditis releases protease that contributes to valvular breakdown, potentially leading to heart failure and related complications. And those infected goobers can break off and travel to somewhere else in the body, wreaking havoc wherever they end up. I will get to that in a minute. But first, let's talk a little bit more about valvular damage. So you have the tricuspid, pulmonic, mitral, and aortic valves, all of which could get little vegetations growing on them. The tricuspid specifically being the most common location of vegetation for those who inject drugs. So with vegetation on the right side of the heart, the tricuspid is supposed to open and let blood flow from the right atrium to the right ventricle. But if the valve is damaged from the vegetation that's been growing on it, well, now we have impaired forward flow. The valve can't close properly. So blood can back up from the right ventricle to the right atrium. And if the pulmonic valve is damaged, then you have blood backing up into the right ventricle, all of which can cause right-sided heart failure. And on the left side, same thing. A damaged aortic or mitral valve can cause left-sided failure, which allows blood to back up into the pulmonary vasculature, causing pulmonary edema. Additionally, when blood is backing up, this reduces stroke volume, which leads to hypotension, which leads to shock. But that's not all. <laughs> what if the vegetation on the valve chews away through the perivalvular tissue into the myocardium? Like, an abscess of the heart muscle itself. Well, depending on the location of the abscess, now you have electrical conduction issues. Think about how the electrical conduction is supposed to flow from the SA node to the AV node, down the bundle branches to the Purkinje fibers. Well, nasty bacteria can surely damage cardiac conduction, leading to a variety of arrhythmias. Another important aspect of infective endocarditis to discuss is the formation of mobile septic emboli. Remember I said I saw something in Cora's heart that looked like it was dancing? Yeah, the mobile vegetation on her mitral valve was moving all over the place. The way it was whipping around in there, I could totally see how easy it would be for a piece of it to break off. These emboli can detach from their hometown, 
whatever valve they've been living on, and travel through the bloodstream, leading to various complications depending on their destination. So right-sided emboli typically travel to the lungs, causing pulmonary embolisms. In some cases, they can infiltrate lung tissue, resulting in lung abscesses, a notable manifestation of infective endocarditis. And then left-sided emboli usually break off and travel north, since that's the first place blood goes when it shoots out of the aorta. Septic emboli in the brain can lead to acute ischemic strokes when they lodge in the cerebral circulation. They may also erode the blood vessels, resulting in bleeds such as intracerebral hemorrhages or infiltrate brain tissue, forming cerebral abscesses. This, my friends, is bad news bears. Infective endocarditis manifests in a variety of presentations. Splinter hemorrhages inside the nail beds, along with Janeway lesions in the palms of the hands and soles of the feet, can provide important diagnostic clues for infective endocarditis. So, I don't know how I missed this in nursing school. <laughs> I read about these when I was researching for this episode, and I had to Google it for a visual. So let me try to describe it for you. The Janeway lesions are painless red splotches on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. They are defined as hemorrhagic macules. And then there's splinter hemorrhages, which are little brown or black vertical lines in your nail beds. So I've totally seen these before in patients and didn't think a thing of it. Another one is called Osler's nodes. These are raised painful lesions on the tips of the fingers and toes, also indicative of septic emboli. But cutaneous findings on your hands and feet are the least of your worries once the diagnosis of endocarditis is made. Infective endocarditis can affect other regions of the body, such as the spine, the kidneys, the spleen, joints. This can lead to splenic infarct, discitis, spondylitis, osteomyelitis, septic joints, the list goes on and on. So we've talked about how endocarditis forms and how symptoms can vary greatly depending on where the vegetation is located and if there are septic emboli and where they end up. So symptoms of infective endocarditis almost always include fever and an elevated white blood cell count since there is an infection going on. Also, all of your typical SIRS-type symptoms. So, side note, for more on SIRS, I did a whole episode on sepsis. It's episode number eight, if you wanted to hear the whole breakdown of that inflammatory cascade. All right, so depending on where the goober is located and the extent of damage it has ensued, your patient could have a MRBR, an arrhythmia, left-sided heart failure, right-sided heart failure, pulmonary edema, stroke-like symptoms, joint pain, weird cutaneous findings, etc. So let's say your patient has a handful of symptoms. How do we come to the diagnosis of infective endocarditis? I imagine it's challenging to diagnose since it's diverse clinical presentations and potential for serious complications. The diagnostic criteria for infective endocarditis have been established called the modified Dukes criteria. The Dukes criteria considers several factors and it puts all the possible findings into major and minor criteria categories. So let me break those down a bit. The major categories, which is basically like, this is obvious, guys. You can't argue with this definitive data. <laughs> the first one being positive blood cultures. So from what I've read, you actually want to have three separate sets of blood cultures. You want to have at least two of those that are showing uh, bacterial growth of a microorganism that would be consistent with endocarditis. 
And then the second one would be all of your echocardiogram findings. So the presence of vegetation or abscess or prosthetic valve dehiscence, all of those things would be indicative of infective endocarditis. Typically, a TEE or transesophageal echocardiogram, that's the one that's uncomfortable that they have to uh, sedate the patient for. That is a superior image to the TTE, which is the transthoracic echocardiogram. That's the one where the tech comes to the bedside and squirts all the gel on the patient's chest. So yes, if you have positive blood cultures and echo findings that are like, oh, there's a goober in there, that's major criteria, pretty obvious that you have infective endocarditis. But there's also this huge list of minor criteria. So this would be things like all the predisposing factors. So history of valvular heart disease or intravenous drug use or internal cardiac devices. Also, a bunch of the symptoms like fever, heart murmur, Janeway lesions, glomerular nephritis, Osler's nodes, lab findings like a sed rate, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, excuse me, C-reactive protein elevation, um, if there's microscopic hematuria or rheumatoid factor, like all these things you could find from the lab that might indicate there's infection going on. So as far as these criteria goes, you can diagnose someone with infective endocarditis if you have either two major criteria, obviously, or one major criteria plus three minor criteria, or just a collection of five or more minor criteria. So it doesn't have to be the smoking gun of the diagnostic TEE showing a dancing vegetation on the valve. Your patient could also just have five minor criteria that could make you go, hmm. <laughs> so for example, a patient comes in who uses one, intravenous drugs, two, they have a fever, three, they have a new murmur, four, you notice some Janeway lesions, and five, they have an elevated sed rate. Well, there you go. That's five minor criteria. It's important to note that diagnosing infective endocarditis can be complex and often requires a multidisciplinary approach involving infectious disease specialists and cardiologists. The clinical judgment of healthcare professionals is crucial in interpreting the diagnostic criteria and considering the individual's specific presentation, like their risk factors, their imaging findings, so you can get an accurate diagnosis. So it's not your job as the bedside nurse to make this diagnosis. But I think it sure is helpful to know the diagnostic criteria so you can know what to assess for to rule in or rule out infective endocarditis. The final piece that I want to talk through is the treatment for infective endocarditis. So there are two antibiotics or antibiotics plus surgery. <laughs> Again, not my call. But if the valve is damaged, it will likely need to be replaced. It would be ideal for patients to complete a full course of antibiotics prior to surgery to help reduce the postoperative complications. However, it's always a risk-benefit analysis made by a multidisciplinary team. If patients have evidence of heart failure or conduction issues like a heart block or a drug-resistant organism that's growing, the risk of waiting might outweigh the risk of early surgery. So the final aspect that I want to address is the nurse's role in caring for patients with infective endocarditis. So I have cared for a lot of these patients in my career. 
especially when I worked in the cardiac ICU. I would care for these patients post-valve repair. Obviously, we play an important role in assessing and monitoring the patient and treating their symptoms with medication. But I think the big aspect that I want to focus on is teaching. I've cared for so many patients who developed infective endocarditis, consented to surgery, and woke up post-op in my care and had no idea how they got endocarditis or what it even was. (laughs) The nurse plays a crucial role in educating the patient and their family about infective endocarditis what its treatment is, and the importance of adherence to the prescribed regimen. This includes explaining the nature of the infection, the purpose and side effects of all the medications, the need for follow-up care, and any lifestyle modifications required to prevent further complications. And yes, a lot of these patients that I cared for were IV drug users. But you know what? No one has ever decided to change their ways because they felt so judged by someone else that it inspired them to turn their life around. So showing less compassion or empathy in your care because the patient's lifestyle is what got them in this position, that does nothing but rob you of the joy of caring for someone who's come from a hard place. Drug users don't decide they want to grow up and become addicted to IV drugs. It's usually a series of events and terrible circumstances that lead them to that place. I'm not saying that it's easy to care for this patient population. Not at all. (laughs) I could tell you some stories about how I had to turn on tough Sarah and show some tough love. But every care decision that I made and all the hard conversations that I had about addiction and getting clean all stemmed from a place of compassion. For those patients that I've cared for and for the loved ones that I've walked through life with who have recovered from addiction, none of them say they recovered because someone was really rude to them and so they decided to change. It almost always starts with someone showing them compassion and then realizing that they are worthy of care and they are worthy of love. Understanding one's worth is the first step in choosing to put in the work to recover and heal from addiction. So let me see if I can summarize all of this. (laughs) Infective endocarditis starts with a fibrin and platelet plug, which is the perfect medium for bacteria to latch onto and grow. Then that vegetation can break down the surrounding tissue, be it the cardiac valves or the myocardium itself. The symptoms for this almost always start with fever, but depend on what part of the heart is affected. Sometimes those vegetations can break off and a piece can travel to somewhere else in the body. If coming from the right side of the heart, the lungs is the next stop. If coming from the left side of the heart, the brain is the next stop. But these emboli can end up anywhere, from the kidneys to the spleen to the spine, literally anywhere. Diagnosis is made by an interdisciplinary team of specialists and can come from a combination of symptoms and diagnostic findings, both from the lab and or ultrasound. Once the diagnosis is made, then the team needs to decide the best course of action by weighing out the risk versus the benefits. So like with this specific patient and their specific comorbidities and their specific location and size of vegetation, When's the best time to do surgery? The nurse plays a vital role in caring for this patient population. In addition to administering medications and assessing and monitoring these patients, they also get the opportunity to provide education and support through their recovery. This is not an easy population to care for by any means, but my hope is that by understanding some of the pathophysiology involved and taking time to consider the whole patient and the overarching goals of their treatment plan, that you will feel more confident in the care you'll provide to the next patient 
with infective endocarditis.